1177, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says in verse 10, just he gets to the end of this letter and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. And pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Well, sometimes uh, preachers uh, are conscious of some sermons being really important. I, I think all sermons are important, all talks are important, but sometimes when you're preparing and you think this is really important, and I feel a little bit like that today, um, I think the subject that we're going to think about today is a really, really crucial one. Um, and I think a lot depends in our Christian lives on our grasp of the truths that we're going to think about today. So, yeah, just say that as an introduction that this is really important and I hope you catch a sense of that as we go through. We've entitled our series Stand um, and we're, we're, we're coming to this uh, part of the armour of God. Uh, that Paul calls the breastplate of righteousness. What, what I'd like to do, first of all, is ask a very obvious question, which is, what is righteousness? I think one of the problems that we face is that it's not really a word that's used a lot, is it, in our modern culture? You know, you don't hear people at the school gates talking about the word righteousness or something being righteous or not and, and added to that as well is the fact that when, when we do hear the word righteous or righteousness I, I think there's possibly a sense in which we immediately think negative thoughts we think of like the idea of self-righteousness um, and it's kind of considered to be someone who thinks they're a bit holier than thou um, or a bit superior so if someone's righteous you know, it's not necessarily a good thing in, in our culture's eyes so I think at the very start we need to get rid of all that um, it's not a negative word it's a very positive word so here I've been greatly helped I've been praying again by all sorts of different writers um, so I don't want to take any credit for, for things that are not original but here, here's a little definition for you um, 
And I'm going to explain this. Do I, do I just need to put a light off? Is that okay? So here's a little definition that won't make any sense to you to start with, but we're going to try and unpack this. Righteousness equals relational quality control. Okay, there's two parts to this. I want to deal with the quality control bit first. When, when we think about righteousness in the Bible, there are two strands. One is legal, and one is more relational. We'll come to that. The legal side is like quality control. It really means being righteous means to pass an inspection. There's a standard or a specification, if you like. And to be righteous is to pass, to come up to scratch. In a way, it refers to something being straight rather than bent or crooked. It fits. It does what it should. It is what it says. It is. What was that advert where it, it does exactly what it says on the tin? You know, there's a, there's a specification and, it, and it, it matches up to that. Uh, often in my business, we're making prototypes, as you know, to test new products. But sometimes we're not making prototypes so much. If, if there's a company who only needs maybe 50 parts, they, they wouldn't use conventional production techniques. They might come to a company like ours and say, we need you to make 50 parts, but they're not prototypes, they're real parts. Once we were making some parts for winches that go on helicopters. It was a tiny little part, just one part, and it, it was only about that big. But the thought that we were making a part that was going to go on a real helicopter, on a winch no less, that's possibly going to be used for someone going down a rope to rescue someone, was quite awesome. And they sent to us, the company sent to us a specification. It had to be the exact size, there were tolerances, even the material had to be a certain hardness. And every part that we made had to be traceable back to the material supplier where we bought the material from. Some parts, when they were made, didn't come up to scratch. So where did they go? In the post of the customer, obviously. No, they, they, no, they didn't. They went in the bin because they didn't come up to scratch. They were rejects. But all the parts that we made that passed the quality inspection, you could say that they were righteous parts. They came up to scratch. You've got that? That's the legal side of it, if you like, the forensic side of it. Quality control. But what about the relational side? There's an idea in the word righteousness, biblically, that to be righteous is about being right with someone. To be right in the eyes of someone else. But it's the same idea as the forensic uh, idea, the legal idea, because what this means is that someone else is casting their eyes over you and they're deciding whether or not you come up to spec. You get that? And if they think you do come up to spec, then everything's fine. 
you're right with them. One great illustration of this is if you were going on a, on a date, I suppose, with someone or, or maybe the relationship gets to the point where marriage is on the cards. I can remember my first date with Jane and I can remember proposing to her and there is a certain amount of stress involved in going on a first date. Not just with Jane. No, no, no. Because what's really happening when you go on a first date is you know that the other person is running the rule over you, aren't they? Aren't they just seeing whether you kind of measure up? And you're doing the same, I suppose, to them as well. They're deciding whether you come up to scratch, aren't they? And when I proposed to Jane and asked her, will you marry me? I suppose in that seemingly eternal moment, she's deciding whether I come up to scratch. I'm putting myself out there to be measured by someone else. She is, in a way, running the rule over me and deciding, is he going to meet my expectations? You can ask her afterwards whether I have or not, but she's got to decide that in that moment. Do we come up to each other's expectations? So the idea here, that's why I say, the idea of righteousness here in the Bible is that of relational quality control. It is all about being acceptable in the eyes of someone else. Does that make sense? To be prepared and ready and acceptable. Now, if, if we define righteousness with this kind of legal and relational content, it isn't hard, I don't think, for all of us to see that this is something that drives every single one of us. This is not an abstract concept, but one that drives every single one of us. Do I come up to scratch in the eyes of... Dot, dot, dot. Am I acceptable... Am I presentable? Maybe a couple of observations here. The, the fear, this goes back to maybe going on a date. One, one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing is covering our faults, our weaknesses, our failures, so that we will be acceptable and so that when someone runs the rule over us, they'll say, okay, you do come up to scratch. We spend a lot of time, don't we, covering up our defects. Uh, we, sometimes we do it physically, but we do it behaviourally as well. You go on a first date. I, I, I was listening to a, a talk by Tim Keller and he really made his congregation laugh. He said, imagine going on a date and you know you talk too much. <laughs> and you, you, what you'll do is you'll, you'll, you'll really work hard not to talk too much. You, you're trying to cover up your defect. But in the end... The other person is going to know what you're really like. But to begin with, you try to kind of, I'm going to cover this up. Maybe you're the other way. You don't talk enough. And so you're kind of writing things down on the back of your hand. Oh, what, what can I talk about? What can I talk about? And you're having a little look under the table. See, I don't, what you're trying to do is cover up your defects so that the other person finds you acceptable, presentable. Secondly, the opposite of this it's obvious, isn't it? Uh, all of us, maybe to some degree, know what it is to feel 
the shame that's involved in someone running the rule over us and then telling us that we don't come up to spec. What does it feel like to yearn for the approval of a significant other and for them to look you up and down and then say, you haven't come up to scratch? And that's deeply painful, isn't it? Rejection is an awful thing. I think for many people, one, one, of our, one of our worst nightmares can be not coming up to scratch somehow. People have dreams, don't they? Uh, I, I don't know whether you read meaning into dreams, but sometimes people have dreams, and um, in, in, in the, it's a nightmare, really, that they've been invited to an event, and they've turned up at the event inappropriately dressed. And, you know, everyone's in kind of dinner jackets and bow ties and ball gowns, and you've turned up in your jeans, is it looking as though you've just done your garden? And you wake up in a cold sweat because you feel people are going to run the rule over me and I'm going to feel ashamed. Or being unprepared for a test. I've, I've shared with you before one recurring dream that I've had when I've been under stress. I've not had it for a while, so that's a good sign. Is of going into a German exam. I've never learned German. Imagine going into a German exam and feeling that your whole career and life depends on passing and you've never been to a single lesson. And that sense of going in there knowing that the outcome will define your life and you, you're unprepared. What, what do you feel? You, someone's going to run the rule over you and you're going to fall short and feel ashamed. There, there's almost a kind of nakedness, isn't there, in being unprepared, being exposed or vulnerable. And I, I think for some people... This, this is a deeply traumatic thing to think about, isn't it? We, we have to ask, don't we, who are the eyes? Who, who are your significant others? Who are you living your life in front of? Whose approval are you seeking? Who is the significant other that's running the rule over you and deciding whether or not you kind of come up to scratch or not? For some people, it will be a parent. How many people do we know who, who are seriously disturbed by the fact that their parents had such high expectations of them and they never felt that they matched up to those expectations? And it dogs them for their whole life. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe you've grown up with a sibling and uh, there's been a sense of, I, I just don't come up to scratch. You know, my, my sister or brother was so much more this or that or the other and I've never felt that i come up to scratch and you spend your whole life kind of trying to cover up that sense of shame a spouse other people, maybe even close friends who, who are the significant others that you are feeling the need to pass muster with sometimes in our modern culture you often hear people say I don't care what other people think and there's a bit of bravado and the, and the chest goes out. The only thing that matters to me is what I think. But actually, even that is fraught, isn't it? Because sometimes, isn't it hard even to live up to our own expectations? Or you could have really low ones. And then maybe you do come up to scratch. And then it occurs to you, my standards are so low. 
So I probably have no self-respect anyway. And then you don't come up to muster. You, you can't win, can you? It's kind of an endless cycle of trying to come up to scratch. I think this truth is all over the Bible. It's there right in the beginning. The very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 says that Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were naked and they felt no what? Shame. Do you get the significance of that verse? They were completely presentable, acceptable, approved and secure. There was no sense of exposure. There was no sense of feeling vulnerable. They had no sense. They didn't even know what shame was. We, we can't even begin to imagine what that would be like, can we? And what's the first thing that happens when sin comes in to God's world? One of the most significant things they feel almost immediately is shame. And what did they try and do? Immediately. God comes in the garden to walk with them. And what do they do? They run away and hide. And more than that, they, they don't just try to hide from God, but even in relation to each other. It says in Genesis chapter 3, they knew they were naked and they sewed leaves together. It's the proverbial fig leaves. They try to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Why? Because they feel vulnerable and ashamed. There's guilt. For the first time in their lives, they're aware that they don't pass the quality control. And that they're not right with God or one another anymore. They don't come up to scratch in the eyes of their significant others. The very people that they need to approve them, they're now uncomfortable with. They can't look God in the eye anymore. They couldn't even look each other in the eye anymore. We know what that feels like, don't we? One of the most horrific things that Jesus says is found in Luke's Gospel. And um, Jesus talks about people at the end of time. And, and he says, they, they will say to the mountains, fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. That, that is an awful thing, isn't it? To contemplate. That when God comes as the significant other that their cry is for the mountains to cover them up because they can't bear the shame that they feel when God comes. They can't bear for God to look at them because they feel so ashamed. Cover us, cover us. They want the mountains to fall on them to cover them. I once counselled a lady who, who had found out that her husband had been having an affair and she confronted him about it and with tears, she recalled that the thing she found hard was that he couldn't look her in the eye. He couldn't look her in the eye. Why was that? Because he was ashamed. He was exposed. What was there before was broken and shattered. And so righteousness on one level, I think, can mean being able to look your significant other in the eye. That's a good definition of righteousness. 
In John chapter 1 verse 1, some of you can quote it for me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, that little word, with, the Word was with God. Jesus, the Son of God, with his Father, is a little Greek word that really means face to face. The Father and the Son looking each other in the eye. Intimacy. It's only sin that spoils that relational um, aspect and brings shame and guilt. So that's a good way to define righteousness. It is relational quality control. When the eyes of someone else are on you and you don't come up to scratch, there's shame. And it's 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 an awesome thing to think of what that means in relation to God, isn't it? And his eyes being upon us. Okay, my second question is, um, what, what does putting on the breastplate of righteousness mean then? And I, I think I've got six things to just whiz through very quickly. Um, the, the first thing is, putting on the breastplate of righteousness will protect you where you're most vulnerable. Um, Maybe some of you, given what we've been saying already, feel vulnerable already, I don't know. But um, what, what is it about a breastplate compared to other pieces of armour? The breastplate apparently covered someone virtually from the neck to the top of the thighs. And it covered the front and the back in two pieces. Now, if you get a stab in the leg or the arm, it might slow you down, but it won't kill you. I suppose it could, if you blood too much, but you know what I mean. If you get a stab in the gut, you'll be dead, or the heart. So I think the significance of the breastplate is that it covers the most vital organs. The Greek word for breastplate, actually, I didn't know this, was, is the word thorax. And the thorax is, the, is, is this part of the chest. It's inside the ribcage, isn't it? The, the thorax of righteousness, it, it, that's where your heart is, your lungs are. If someone knifes you there, you're a goner, you're, you're dead. So the reason you've got a breastplate on is to protect the most vulnerable, vital organs. Now, people in ancient cultures would view these vital organs as kind of seats of emotion. We, we still talk about, you know, the heart, you know, I love you with all my heart doesn't mean I love you with a great pumping mass of bloody flesh, does it? It means my emotions are involved. We, 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 in, the, in olden days, people would talk about their bowels. You know, In the Bible, in the authorised version, it talks about God having bowels of mercy deep down in his being, in his bowels. It, they, so they, these kind of vital organs, people would tie emotions. I suppose now... We, we don't do it as much now, do we? We might talk about someone venting their spleen. Are you familiar with that term? The, the, we we kind of talk about these body parts as though they're kind of emotional things. So we're, we're really talking here about the real you, the inner you, the core, the, the real person. And you need a breastplate to cover your most vulnerable parts what, one thing I've been helped with in my own life is the idea that human beings are made up of 
uh, three distinct things. You, you and I all have a mind, we have emotions, and we have a will. We're different to animals. We're, we, we have a mind to think with, we have a heart to feel things with, and we have a will that we make choices with. We can, we can choose different things. Mind, heart and will. How you think, how you feel and the choices you make. That, that's the real you, isn't it? And if someone else can affect your mind, your heart or your will, in a sense they have you, don't they? If you have a spiritual enemy, how will he attack you? What, what parts of your life will he attack you? He will try to shape the way you think. He will try to shape how you feel. And, he, and he'll certainly try to affect the choices that you make. If someone can affect you in those areas, they have you. So in this great battle, you need, and I need, a breastplate to cover our most vital organs to protect us. And what does God give us? Does he give us a fig leaf? No. He gives us a breastplate. Breastplate protecting our most vulnerable insides, the real you. So hold that thought and um, hopefully we'll uh, develop that as we go through. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness secondly means throwing away the fig leaves that are not able to cover you up and protect you at all. What do I mean by that? I, I think we can do this in two different ways. First of all, we can work very hard to find approval in the wrong places. And I, 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 we've got a lot to say here, so I don't want to dwell too much on all of this, but I, I want to just sow a little seed. All of our efforts in life to be presentable, accepted, loved, cherished, approved, are, in the end, a very deep reflection of our relationship with God. And what I mean by that is that we, we end up looking for approval in the wrong places, thinking that that will meet our deepest desires. Could it be the case that actually we find it often too traumatic to face up to God and so we replace that deep yearning for his approval with other things that are more manageable. If I can feel approved here, that will take my mind off the fact that I'm not in a right relationship with God. And we turn to all sorts of other things. Everyone's different to help us feel accepted, approved, to help us feel presentable and not ashamed. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says there that all of us suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's an amazing verse that. We, deep down we know something of a sense of shame, but we suppress it and try to deal with it in all sorts of other ways. That, that's one way. Another way is that we try to seek approval in the right place, i.e. with God, 
but we go about it in the wrong way. And we realise, actually, yeah, I do feel shame. I do know that I need to be right with God. But we base our acceptance by him on the wrong things. And I want to talk a little bit about that. What is it that makes God accept you and approve you? Well, here's a third thing as we develop this. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness makes you bulletproof. (laughs) I couldn't think of a better way to say that. What do I mean by that? Biblically, righteousness is trusting in what God has provided for you. And it's, it's radically different to other kinds of righteousness. All forms of righteousness involve working hard to be presentable. You, you know, in your career, if you want to be approved by your boss, you have to work hard to come up to scratch. It's all about what you do to come up to scratch. And every kind of righteousness that there is, if you want to come up to scratch, it's up to you, mate. You've, you've got to work hard to come up to scratch. Except Christianity. Just, um, if you're in Ephesians... Just look with me at the end of chapter 5. Paul's speaking about husbands and wives. And in verse 25 he says, a very scary verse for husbands, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he explains why Jesus gave himself up for the church. He did it to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless do you get the significance of that verse now after what we've been saying that Jesus comes into the world and he lays down his life so that the church is completely blameless. And can, how, how can I say this? The, in, what Paul's saying is that the whole point of the gospel is to enable you to walk into God's presence with your head held high and look him in the eye. And not be looking at your shoes or feeling ashamed or unable to bear God looking at you because you know you're guilty. There's a wonderful, um, wonderful hymn written by uh, the wonderfully named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. What a great name that is. Is that a made up name? I don't know. He was travelling on a ship when he wrote a very famous hymn. And, and th- this is, uh, you, some of you will recognise it. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Amidst flaming worlds, in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am, from sin 
and fear from guilt and shame. The holy, meek, unspotted lamb who from the Father's bosom came, who died for me, even me to atone, now for my Lord and God I own. Do you, do you see what the, the great, uh, wonderfully named Kant is saying there? He, he, what, what he's saying is, I don't have any righteousness of my own to bring. I know that I don't come up to scratch. But God has given me a righteousness that is not my own. And so I can lift up my head with joy. There's no shame. The gospel is great because it confers dignity on people and enables you to look God in the eye. Why did we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 earlier? You don't need to turn to it again, but what, what does um, Paul say there? He, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing transaction. If you, if you think of this as like having a bank account with a debit column and a credit column, you're familiar with that. If you do online banking, I don't know, or you get your bank statement, you've got all the stuff that goes out and all the stuff that comes in. Now you, you imagine that you are a million pounds in debt in your debit column. That's a bad state of affairs to be in. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus comes along and he takes all that debt out of your debit column and he puts it into his debit column. That's why he died. He takes all of your debt, all your sin and mine on his own shoulders. Now that would be great, but that's only half the story. Because what, what Jesus then does is he takes all his credit and he puts it into your credit column. This is so important. That, that means that when God looks at you and is casting his eye over you, what does he see? He doesn't see anything in the debt column. What he sees is huge credit. But it's not your credit. It's Christ's credit. What, what, what he's done is that he, he's imputing the righteousness of Christ. That, that means that the life that Jesus lived in this world is credited to your account as if you lived it. Can you imagine how much the Father loves his Son? Well, if, if that life is credited to your account, can you imagine how much God loves you? It, it, it has got nothing to do with your performance. It's got nothing to do with whether you come up to scratch or not. This is something that is a gift to you. Someone else has done it. He's the one that comes up to scratch and then he gives you that to your credit. He takes our sin away and gives us his righteousness. That's why the great Kant could say, with joy shall I lift up my head because he's clothed in the righteousness of another In Romans chapter 4, Paul speaks of what God does when he saves someone. And he says, um, he says this, Romans chapter 4 verse 4, When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. 
I'm an employer. Well, if I got ten a month that said, there you go, I'm giving you all a huge gift, and they'll all go, you're joking, aren't you? That's our salary. You owe us that. We've come into work every day this month. We've worked for that. You're not giving it to. You're not giving it that to us. That that you owe us that because it's a, it's not a gift. We worked for it. But Paul says in verse five. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. I, I, that is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible that God justifies the wicked the word justify is to make righteous God makes people who are wicked righteous he justifies them he declares them not guilty how can he do that because Jesus has taken their sins away and given them his righteousness so God can now say I'm going to treat you as, exactly as if you were Jesus you have my righteousness. How do you get that? Well, Paul says, you can't work for it because it's not earnable. It's a gift and it comes by believing in the Lord Jesus. Faith in Jesus is credited to us as righteousness. On, uh, we've been in London this week and uh, it's been great seen some of the Olympics but one of the highlights for me was on Friday we went to see a play and it was a showing of the C.S. Lewis story The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe we went with our children and um, it's a great it, it just reminded me of the story you remember the little boy in the story Edmund who goes off and eats the Turkish delight with the white witch and the white witch comes to Aslan, the lion, later in the story. And she says to Aslan, he's mine. You know the rules. You know the deep magic of Narnia. Anyone who's a traitor becomes my property. And Aslan has a little private chat with her. They go, in the film, they go off into a little tent and they have a chat. And he comes out and Aslan says, Edmund's free to go. I've, I've dealt with the witch and the witch is all kind of giddy because she thinks she's won and what, what Aslan has done is he said to her there is an even deeper magic that says if a willing volunteer lays down his life for the traitor then the traitor can go free and he offers to lay down his life she thinks she's won and of course C.S. Lewis was a Christian it's a great allegory of the gospel the stone table cracks and death itself is reversed, as C.S. Lewis says. Do you know the greatest power that Satan has over human beings is to separate you from God and to say to God, she's mine. He's mine. They're a traitor. They've rebelled against you and they're my property. And Jesus comes and says, no, they're not. I'm willingly going to pay their debt so that they can now be mine. And he bears the debt of the traitor, so that the traitor can go free, and not be the enemy's property anymore. The breastplate of righteousness that God has given you to wear, makes you bulletproof. 
in the sense that when you are wearing that breastplate, it is, it's more than being inside an armoured tank. The devil cannot say over your life to God, he or she is mine, when you're wearing his righteousness. You're untouchable when you're wearing it. He can't harm you. He can't steal you away from God. I've got a bit carried away. I've still got two things or three things to say. We'll have to be quick. Let me, um, let me give you uh, very quickly these last points. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness then provides assurance. Christians talk a lot about assurance. Sometimes I'll say to people, how do you know that you're a Christian? Maybe I should ask you, how do you know you're a Christian? If your answer to that question is, I know I'm a Christian because of what I've done, I want to say to you very gently and very lovingly, you're not a Christian. (laughs) Because that isn't the gospel. If you think you can cover your shame and gain God's approval when he runs his eye over your life by what you do, you've missed the whole point of the gospel. Because if you did that for a million years, you'd never come up to scratch. What you need is the righteousness of someone else. What are you relying on? So that you can look God in the eye and not be ashamed. Maybe you're relying on your feelings. I went to a meeting once and I had such a sense of God's presence with me and it made me feel all warm and nice inside. And then maybe a few weeks or days or months later those feelings disappear and you look, well, maybe God's not there now. If you're wearing your feelings as your breastplate, when your feelings change, you can't be sure that God loves you. That won't protect you. It's like a fig leaf. What you need to know is that Christ has died and that his righteousness covers you. Maybe you're relying on your activities. Some people are very busy, aren't they? Doing this, doing that, doing that. Nothing wrong with being busy. But if you're relying on your doing things to curry favour with God... You're not relying on the breastplate of righteousness. You're making your own breastplate. And in the end, it won't protect you. What are you relying on to gain acceptance and approval with God? Are you relying on your own efforts, feelings, experiences, activities? Or are you trusting in Christ if you're wearing the breastplate of righteousness it will give you assurance if you're trusting in something else it never can because it's a fig leaf that won't cover you secondly as as we close these last two or three points putting on the breastplate of righteousness will stimulate confidence what, what I mean by that is the confidence to live a Christian life. Uh, can, I get, can I just use two technical words? When, when, when the Bible talks about righteousness, great teachers, better men than me, have said this. There's two kinds of righteousness. One is imputed righteousness. This righteousness is a gift. 
That's what we've been talking about, imputed righteousness. God gives it to you. It's Christ's righteousness, really, that clothes you. Imputed righteousness. But there's another kind of righteousness in the Bible, and that is called imparted righteousness. And the second kind of righteousness depends on the first, because imparted righteousness means, and we we touched on it in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. When someone trusts in Jesus and receives the righteousness of Christ, what does God do? He puts the Holy Spirit in their heart. They become a new creature. He gives them his own power to live a new kind of life. Why does God do that? He can only give you his spirit if he accepts you in the first place, can't he? It dep- if, if you're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he can't, he can't give you the Holy Spirit into your heart and life. The second depends on the first. But how often we get these the wrong way around? A Christian who's got these the wrong way around says, God loves me because I've had a good week this week. I've been really good as a Christian and that means that God must love me because I've had a good week. I've really done well. I've been reading my Bible every day. I've, I've, I've come up to scratch. A Christian who understands the gospel says, the opposite to that, the Christian who understands the gospel says, I can have a good week because he accepts me already and has given me his spirit to steer me and help me. Someone who doesn't understand the gospel says, I must try my best so that God won't reject me. But a Christian who understands the gospel says, God doesn't reject me, he accepts me because of what Christ done, therefore I will try my best with his help. Imputed righteousness is not our own but Christ. He gives it to us so that we can be clothed in it and safe. Imparted righteousness is, is the supernatural principle of God's life being planted in your heart. William Gernel, he wrote a book on the armour of God, I think in the 1700s. He says this, This is a life that is new and different. Satan always draws out and kindles the rubbish he finds. But God puts something there that wasn't there before. Do you get that? Satan is always stirring up the old. Whereas God puts something there that was never there before. And the reason he does that is because he's accepted you in Christ. So there's a confidence there. Does that stir your heart? There's hope for you. Forgiveness and power. You can live a Christian life. But not to earn God's favour. You can live a Christian life because he accepts you in Christ, gives you his spirit. William Gaynor said that sin removes God's love from us and God's likeness in us. But Christ restores both. He brings God's love back to us and he puts his spirit in our heart to make us Christ-like. He does both. Christianity is not just about God letting us off, but about God lifting us up to live a new kind of life. So there's a confidence in this. If you've got the breastplate of righteousness on, you know that your efforts are not the thing 
that earn God's favour. It's Christ that is the basis of your acceptance. And when you know that, you can be confident to live your life in his strength. Yeah, this side of heaven, it's imperfect. Sometimes the willingness is there and the ability isn't. We want to do things and we find we can't. Paul says this in Romans chapter, oh, I wish I could do the things I wanted to do and not do the things I shouldn't. There's a struggle this side of heaven because we have two natures. But the fact that we struggle doesn't mean that we're not accepted. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me um, finish off with the last point. This is a, a verse that will fix things that are broken. Can I, can I just finish with some applications? Time, time's gone, really. Are you all still with me? I don't, I don't want to miss this out. What, what do I mean by this? It'll fix what's broken. Let, let me give you some examples that Tim Keller gives. These are not original. When you're bitter about something, putting on the breastplate of righteousness can help you. Tim Keller tells a story of a dad who was a minister, like I am. And his son ran off. I think with a married woman. And the dad, who's a minister, was tremendously bitter. And he realises that his son has humiliated him. I'm supposed to be a minister and lead people to Jesus and my own son's gone off the rails. What does that make me? Can you imagine that? He he kind of swings between being very angry and very bitter and, and very guilty. Now, if you were counsel that man, you could say to him, you need to repent of your bitterness. But he doesn't need to repent of his bitterness so much as repent of making his fatherly achievements the basis for his acceptance with God. His, his underlying problem is that he is relying on being a good dad for God to accept him. That's his fig leaf. And he doesn't need to repent of his bitterness first. That will come second. And this is a true story. When this man repented first of the fact that he had been relying on being a good dad for God to love him, then he found that he could forgive his son. Liberated him. And you know, often with bitterness, the thing that's going on really is that we feel bitter because the thing we were relying on for acceptance is being taken away from us. And so it makes us feel insecure and angry and cross with the people who've stripped us of it. But the, the underlying issue is that we're relying on the wrong thing for acceptance. You put, if he was putting on the breastplate of righteousness, he was liberated from that kind of bitterness. What about when you're guilty? One of the worst things, I think, in a Christian's life is when sometimes you'll come to communion maybe and you'll hear a little voice on your shoulder like Jiminy Cricket saying, you've not done it again, have you? And a sin that you thought you'd been forgiven for, you've done again. And you know you've... And, it, it, and 
the little voice says, if you were a Christian, I mean, I can understand you not being a Christian and doing that, but once God's forgiven you and then you've done it again, how on earth is he going to love you now? Do you know what the difference is between God convicting you of sin and the devil accusing you? Is that God will always point you towards imputed righteousness and the devil will always point you away from it. The devil will always say, because you've done that, God can't love you. When God comes to you, he'll always say, you can come because God does love you. And Christ has died for you. And the thing to do when you're guilty and you hear that voice, where does it come from? Your conscience, the devil, it doesn't really matter. You need to talk to it and say, you can't frighten me. You're right to point out that I'm a sinner. But don't dare tell me that I can't come. Because that is implying that Jesus is not enough. And you're insulting him. He died to make it possible for me to come. What about when you're working too hard? So many people are driven. Busy, busy, busy. What is that? Sometimes it is a fig leaf. I'm so busy because I'm trying to cover up my shame. Maybe you need to put on the breastplate of righteousness and stop being so busy trying to cover shame with activity come and trust the breastplate God gives to you what about when you feel shy and self conscious sometimes that is an outworking of I'm not worthy so I'm going to withdraw into the shadows But Christ makes you worthy. Sometimes, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on this section says this is one of the reasons why people don't pray in church prayer meetings. Because they feel unworthy. I can't pray. I'm not as clever as I can't find the... Why? When Christ has died to make you his. The Christian gospel is amazing because... It will help you to be confident because he loves you without being arrogant. And it will help you to be humble because you know it all depends on him without being a despairing worm. Only the Christian gospel can help you to be healthy. And that's why putting on the breastplate of righteousness can fix some of these things that are broken. It's very, very practical, isn't it? And I hope Maybe we've touched on things that are a reality for you. And if that's true, then uh, please, let's talk about these things together. The breastplate of righteousness, being clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, knowing that we're accepted because of Jesus and not based on our performance, is such a crucial, crucial thing. Paul says, therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Well, may it be uh, true for all of us. Let me just pray and then we're going to sing.
the final song. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for for your word to us. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that when you cast your eye over our lives, we, we can come up to scratch because you've given us the righteousness of Jesus. Father, we pray that as, as you've spoken to us, as you've touched our hearts, that you would help us to know a measure of liberating healing as we reflect together on the fact that, that you accept us because of Jesus. Oh Lord, help us not to look for approval in the wrong places and help us not to seek it with you in the wrong way. Help us to put the breastplate of righteousness on so that we can lift up our heads, so that we can look you in the eye, so that we can be safe, secure, loved, cherished by you. We, uh, we ask it and give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.